We're going to begin chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. While you're turning there, I want to remind you about global hunger relief. It used to be world hunger. It's an opportunity for you to give to help those uh, who aren't as fortunate as us and that they don't, many of them know where the next meal is coming from. The one thing I love, I love about the SBC's effort to combat world hunger is that every dollar you give buys a dollar's worth of food. There aren't any overhead costs, any administrative costs, because the missionaries are already on, on the ground where this food is going to go. So you think about that. You guys, uh, many of you gave generously last week, as evidenced by the amount that came in. But if others of you were not aware of it or just hadn't had the opportunity to give, yet I want to I commend that offering to you. It is a worthy, worthy effort, worthy place for you to put your resources. We're going to look today at one of the most quoted... And I would suggest to you one of the most mishandled verses in all of Scripture. So we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Jesus is speaking here. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Father, as we continue through this wonderful section of Scripture that you've given us, that your Son has shared on that mount a long time ago and is sharing with us again today, I pray you would speak through the power of your Holy Spirit through me as your vessel to the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters who are gathered here today. We might hear a message, Father, from you, for that is the only way we can be changed. I pray you would do that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. A deacon was just leaving the church parking lot one afternoon when a large moving van rolled up. And the driver waved at him and, and he shouted at him, Hey, we're moving from Walla Walla to Richmond. How much further is it? The deacon said, Well, you're almost there. It's about 10 more miles. The man said, Well, hey, listen, buddy, while I got you, what kind of folks do you think we'll find in Richland? And the deacon asked him, Well, let me ask you this. What kind of folks did you leave behind in Walla Walla? And the man answered, well, they were just a pessimistic and petty lot. They were a miserable bunch of folks. Every time I tried to help them, uh, I tried to do everything I could for them. Just a godless bunch of folks, really. That's the main reason we're moving. So, so again, what kind of folks will we find in Richland? The deacon said, the very same kind, I'm afraid to say. He was right. He knew the man would find in the next town the same kind of people he perceived to be in the town that he was leaving. Beloved, the truth is, the way we look at a situation, the attitude we allow to control us, has a direct bearing on how we experience reality. Outlook often determines outcome. Put another way, the mind matters. Let's park there for just a moment. Paul says that the connection between how we live and how we think is closely 
related. Here's the literal rendering of Romans 8, verse 5. For those being according to the flesh, mind the things of the flesh. But those being according to the Spirit, mind the things of the Spirit. What Paul is saying there under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit is that our lifestyle, our character, our choices to a large extent are shaped by the way our minds are what, shaped by what our minds are dwelling on. Which is why Paul says to us in another place, Colossians 3, 2, that since we've been raised with Christ, we're to set our minds on things that are above. So what does it mean to mind something or to set the mind? In the English language, when we use the term mind as a verb, it's more than just thinking about something. It carries the idea of deeply concentrating on the subject matter, being engrossed in, in, in the subject matter, having one's attention and imagination wholly gripped by that subject matter. The 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, once said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. I put differently, the place where your mind naturally and effortlessly wanders when undistracted is a true reflection of your deepest desires. Our thoughts heavenly influence our decisions and our direction. Defeating sin starts with how we think. We can triumph over our flesh as we focus on the things of the Spirit. Now, of course, we're talking specifically here about the sin of judgmentalism, of judging others with a critical spirit. It's obvious that, that two people can look at the same thing or, and make a judgment on the very same situation and see it very differently based on the mindset that they bring to that particular moment in time, based on the patterns of thinking that they've formed over the years of their life. Most of us are familiar with the words we just read from our Savior regarding our critical attitude. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now, you remember this from our time in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus has made a big deal out of attitudes, right? And I hope you've come to understand why He does that. And, and we are responsible for our attitudes. There's no getting around that. But that doesn't mean we can just ignore the role of the environment that we've had during our developmental years. That provides us with some background for the roots of our attitudes to a large degree. Some of us struggle with certain kinds of attitudes because of the culture that we're from, the kind of home that we grew up in, or maybe the kind of church that we attended during our formative years. Maybe you grew up in a home where people of a different ethnicity or skin color were often maligned. Maybe you grew up in a home that had someone or several someones who, who were always picking away at the imperfections of others, always quick to find fault with anyone and everything. Maybe you attended a church to which the church was, where the teaching and the preaching was, was, was more about the things to which the church is opposed than it, than it was about the things that the church stood for. Maybe you sat through countless Sunday dinners of roast preacher at your parents' table. Those who are laughing know what I mean, right? 
Maybe you were the one who was often criticized. It was you. Now, now you have the same attitude. You hear it come across in the way you speak to your children. Maybe you struggle in public settings to just relax and enjoy what's going on because you were always brought up to be scrutinizing and comparing and forming opinions about the things and the people that you see and experience. And if you did grow up learning to criticize the speck in other folks' eyes, I want you to listen carefully this morning. This could be a breakthrough day for you. We're going to learn what Jesus has to say about judging, and that's going to involve learning how to get the log out of our own eye, learning how to deal with negative thinking, dealing with criticism, and we're going to see that there actually are some judgments that we must make as Christians. So when Jesus brings up judging here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's addressing that an issue that he's addressing an issue that every one of us face from time to time. We see it in others for sure, and if we're honest about it, we see it in ourselves as well. Having a negative, judgmental, critical attitude is everywhere, even in us. Jesus says in verses 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not, that, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let me ask you this. Have you heard folks say something like this before? Well, who are you to judge? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Right? Man. Who are you to judge those involved in a loving homosexual relationship? Who are you to judge someone who self-identifies as a female, even though they were born as a male? Who are you to judge a couple because they're living together, unmarried? Who are you to judge those of a different belief system than you, be they Latter-day Saints or Catholics or Jehovah Witnesses? Beloved, when it comes to talking about judging, there are two basic categories of responses. First, there are those folks who refuse to make any significant judgments. Their motto is live and let live, right? If it's not criminal, and even if it is criminal and they disagree with the law, right? They believe that everyone should be able to live by their own moral code, their own set of what is right and what is wrong, their their morals, whether it's moral or immoral according to anyone else, their own values, their own lifestyle. And it's not the church's place, and it's certainly not individual Christians' place to judge them. So those who refuse to make any significant judgment. And then there are those who are all too willing to to judge. They take great pleasure in identifying their target and aiming their arrow and letting anyone who will listen that they know exactly what God has to say about this matter. That last group, you you recognize some folks in that last group that's made up of very hypercritical people who, who not only judge others with the wrong attitude, but for the wrong reasons. They, they, they tend to judge others not because of anything they, that they did that was blatantly uh, contrary to Scripture, but because of some minor offense or infraction that more often than not has to do with just a matter of personal preference. These folks are often angry. They're angry and vindictive against folks who don't see things their way, who don't have a similar preference or similar convictions. They're like the Pharisees. They see only the letter of the law while neglecting the weightier matters of mercy and love and justice. I suggest to you that Jesus is speaking to both groups when He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. So so what did Jesus mean by these words exactly? Did, Did He mean that we're better off 
if we never make judgments, because those judgments are just eventually going to come right back around to us. Church family, that is precisely what he is not saying. Jesus is not teaching us here that, that we should never judge. To say, as some do, that Jesus is saying that we should withhold all judgments of any kind, that we should seek above all else an attitude of unity and peace, to say that we should be tolerant and hold back from ever expressing opinions about what others believe and say and do, is to fail to understand the full teachings of Holy Scripture. But the challenge is always this, Alistair Begg writes, are men and women going to allow the Word of God to sit in judgment on their puny minds? Or are they going to make their puny minds the judges of the Word of God? Beloved, it is a critical mistake to speak and act as if unity and love are more important than biblical truth and right doctrine. A mistake that too many have made. It is simply, and, and with your apologies, I'll use one of the big words that I learned in seminary. Wrong. In, in, in practice and in principle, it is wrong. Let me show you by taking a look at the context of Jesus' words. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now let me ask you, how could you possibly obey this command if we were not able to judge the difference between a pig and a dog? Right? Jesus is making a powerful statement here about the need for discernment, about the need for sound judgment. And it's about more than knowing the difference between uh, two common animal species. It's about learning to differentiate between what is clean and what is unclean. It's about distinguishing what is evil and what is good. It's about evaluating what is wise and what is foolish. And all of this requires that we make sound judgments. And if we look at more context, look at verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. How can we be aware of false prophets unless we use our discernment to identify them? Just a few verses down, Jesus makes probably one of the most sobering statements in all of Scripture. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a strong statement about genuine and false belief some some of these folks are doing wonderful miracles but they're nonetheless jesus says going to be turned away on the day of judgment church family there are some things that we can be wrong about but let us not be wrong about false teachers and their doctrines we have been warned Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 and 4 for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And we have seen the results of false doctrine. Paul Washer writes, False teachers are God's judgment on people who don't want God, but in the name of religion plan on getting everything their carnal heart desires. That's why Joel Osteen is raised up. 
Those people who sit under Him are not victims of Him. He is the judgment of God upon them because they are what exactly, they want exactly what He wants and it's not God. So then Jesus is not saying we're never to engage in any form of examination, any form of evaluation of others. And He's not saying that it's wrong for us to make a decision that a person's actions or lifestyles lifestyles are immoral or harmful or sinful and that they as a result are immoral and sinful for engaging in those activities but my my what a convenient out for folks who would like to justify all manner of activity immoral and evil or otherwise they love to spin this statement Jesus makes here who are you to judge to attack anyone who would stand up for righteousness and goodness and biblical morality. But beloved, that's the culture, right? That's the culture that we live in today. It's been like that for a while now. Now, Throughout our lives, most of us have been accosted by a strong emphasis on open-mindedness, tolerance, being accepting, and clearly, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those traits. They can be admirable. But what a lot of folks in our culture mean when they use those terms is that each of us is obligated as a minimum to recognize, but it's really more than that nowadays. We're now obligated to validate any activity, any act, any moral choice, any lifestyle without holding it up to some objective moral standard, which for us, is the Word of God. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. I used to think of myself as a fairly, fairly tolerant person, but over the years, my philosophy and my worldview has put me at odds with the modern world. I've come to understand that while perhaps I would have once perhaps been considered tolerant, now a lot of folks in our country would see me as an extremely intolerant person, especially preaching a message like this today. And listen, I've changed a little, I'll admit that, but not that much, particularly not in the past 30 years. But the meaning of the word tolerance in this country sure has. Tolerance used to be a desirable quality. It used to mean, it used to mean that even if, even if someone happened to strongly disagree with someone else's position, there, there could exist a modicum of respect and humanity between the two. You could have a conversation still. Now, now, now it means that I must acknowledge any belief or action, regardless of how far out it might be, regardless of how opposed to all that is decent and right and moral it might be. I have to acknowledge those ideas, those beliefs, those practices as having equal value in the marketplace of ideas. And if I dare to differ, then I'm a bigot. I'm a racist. I'm a homophobe. I'm a right-wing, ultra-conservative, out-of-touch-with-the-real-world religious fanatic. If tolerance is now defined like that, then what we are being asked to do is call evil good and good evil. But beloved, if God's Word calls it evil, if God's Word calls it sinful, how dare we disagree with Him just to be politically correct? How can we oppose His Word just to try to accommodate those who are without moral foundation? Dare we validate those for whom anything goes at the expense of denigrating God and compromising His bride? Sadly, 
Many churches have fallen victim to pressures that have led them to blend modern philosophies with godly traditional principles, all in the name of being more accepting and more appealing. And the result, beloved, the result is an anemic, watered-down version of the church in Scripture which knows little of the supernatural power of God. A church that's experiencing an ever-weakening ability to influence our culture for good. In our own time, and in the generations to follow, listen to me, young people. The church that is faithful to the gospel, that upholds a morality rooted in Scripture, will be in constant conflict with and criticism from the larger culture. If the church in the years to come seeks peace at the expense of moral compromise, we will find that peace only if we forsake the gospel as revealed in Scripture. If the church in the years to come seeks to accommodate the culture in an effort to win the culture, we will have to compromise all that the church has held dear and sacred for centuries. We will have to sacrifice the Christ as revealed in Scripture. The criticism of the Christian church and biblically-based morality has been around always, but it's certainly increased in recent years, but it will only escalate from here, and it will not be pleasant. I fear the day is fast approaching where here in America, when as Christians, we will not only have to withhold judgment rooted in Scripture, but deny our faith in Christ to avoid persecution. Young people, hear me again. It will fall to your generation to defend the faith and the bride. And you simply must be, young people, you simply must be prepared. And church, parents, pastors, teachers, it is our job to ensure that they are prepared. Dr. Al Mohler writes, We must defend the right to believe in enough theology to get us into trouble with anyone, anywhere in a secular age. We must defend the right of Christians along with other believers to be faithful in the public square as well as in the privacy of our own homes, hearts, and churches. We must defend the right to teach our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We must defend the rights of Christian schools to be Christian and to order our institutions around the Word of God without fear. We must defend the right of generations of those yet unborn to know the liberties we have known and we have known and now defend. These are days that will require courage, conviction, and clarity of vision. We are in a fight for the most basic liberties God has given humanity, every single one of us made in his made in his image. The very freedom to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mulder writes, is at stake, and thus so is the liberty of every American. If we lose religious liberty, All other liberties will be lost one by one. No God, no truth. Beloved, if Jesus was not talking about refraining from any form of judgment, what was he talking about? It's clear that Jesus is saying that we should not allow ourselves to develop and maintain this hypercritical, judgmental spirit. He's talking about our general attitude as a believer toward others. He's talking about our appetite for criticizing others, about being condemnatory and self-righteous as we make judgments, about doing it with a holier-than-thou attitude. 
We all have a tendency to be judgmental at various times. And maybe, maybe it's because as, as we put other people down, we're somehow lifting ourselves up. It's been said that, that people tend to condemn in others the very things that they see in themselves. Could it be that as we point out the inadequacies of others, we are, are merely attempting to obscure our own? One thing is obvious. Being judgmental is a serious issue for the church today. One with which we must deal if we're to move on and be all the church that God has equipped us and called us to be. But there's a separate issue from the truth that none of us likes to be judged and none of us wants to be around somebody who is judgmental. Another and more serious problem I suggest to you, Jesus warns us, that those of us who participate in judging will be judged ourselves. Judging others, you see, like other sins, has consequences. Judgmental criticism affects us personally in a negative way. It takes a costly toll from us spiritually. One clear principle that comes up time and again in God's Word is this. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. You see, God is not some arbitrary being out in the cosmos who vacillates when it comes to right and wrong, sinful and and, and moral, saying, well, okay, it's right this time, and that was wrong. It was okay last time. Next time it might not be. Everything God calls sin is harmful to us as human beings every time. God says, don't. What he's in effect saying is, don't, you will only hurt yourself. So when God says, don't judge, don't criticize, it's not because he's trying to deprive us of some satisfactory experience. He's actually saying, that goes against the nature of who I made you to be. Fish are made to swim. Birds are made to fly. And people are made to live in fellowship with their Heavenly Father and with one another. When we sin by criticizing, we break our fellowship with God and we damage our relationships with one another. And to engage in that kind of criticism, the kind of judging that Jesus condemns here, really is to set ourselves up as God. That's what we're doing. Sometimes sometimes it's like we forget that God is the ultimate judge of all things. In His omniscience, He knows everything. But with our flawed and finite minds, you and I are rarely in possession of all the facts. We are seldom able to look at a specific situation and see it for what it really is. And we're absolutely unable to look inside a person's heart and judge their motives. We're given no license for that. James writes, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? When we do make that mistake, we have set ourselves up as God. And Jesus says, if we do that, then we're going to be judged. Jesus even tells us how that judgment will take place. He says, the way you judge is the way you will be judged. In other words, what goes around comes around. The standard to which we hold others 
will be the standard by which we are judged. Beloved, we're going to be a little introspective here for the rest of the sermon. Let me ask you this. To what standard are you holding others? Can you, in fact, live up to that standard? Be careful when you answer this. In fact, I would suggest to you that maybe you shouldn't be the one to answer that at all. Perhaps you ought to ask a brother or sister you know who will be honest with you about whether you measure up to the standards, the morals, the values, the practices that you champion. Lucy from the cartoon strip Peanuts is a constant fault finder and ever quick to criticize her playmates. One day, Linus asked Lucy a question. He asked her, Why are you so anxious all the time to criticize me? And Lucy answered, Well, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. <laughs> Linus says, Well, what about your own faults? To which Lucy replies, I have a knack for overlooking them. Love more often than not, more often we'd like to admit for sure, we overlook our own personal failures and inconsistencies. And that's why Jesus warns us about having a hypercritical spirit here. So the clear message of Jesus is that when we judge, if we make a judgment, be careful not to do it with a critical spirit. He, he condemns, excuse me, He commands us to, to eliminate a critical condemnatory attitude when it comes to our relationships with others and to help us avoid that Jesus turns the focus away from others and puts it on ourselves and he tells us in effect to take a look in the mirror rather than looking to others with a critical eye and judging them we should rather look to ourselves and judge ourselves he calls us to evaluate our own lives before we attempt to help others evaluate their lives it's only by evaluating ourselves that we'll be able to resist the temptation to evaluate others. The illustration Jesus gives us is a humorous one. Clearly, what He's trying to teach us here is that our first task is to examine ourselves. Take a good, hard look in the mirror. Make an accurate estimation of how well you're doing living up to the example of Christ to which you aspire. So, beloved, what about your faults? What about my faults? What about my sins? What about your sins? Can you be honest with you about you? So many of us, we need to take a good look at our own hearts. T too many good Christian folks live with this illusion that their hearts are pure and untainted when they're not. In fact, none of us are. Until we see our heart as God sees it, it will be easy to judge others. Until we see our sin as God sees it, it will always be easy to judge others. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus tells us that unless we're willing to deal with our own situation, we are nothing but a hypocrite. When we have an accurate assessment of our lives, we are far less tempted to judge others. When we get a true vision, as in a mirror of our heart, we become acutely aware that what we need is mercy, not judgment. 
The verse is not, while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them. It's more like, while I was yet a sinner, my Savior died for me. For me, I know that even with a fair judgment, were it not for the grace of Christ, I would be utterly condemned. And as a church, we're far from perfect RBC, but we are a church that is known for a great many good and godly things. My prayer is that we will also be known as a church that treats others as we would want to be treated ourselves. I believe Dr. Piper gets it right when he says we treat people better than they deserve because God treats us better than we deserve. And a huge part of that, a huge part of that church family is giving one another the benefit of the doubt. Do you want others to give you the benefit of the doubt? Then give it to them. Do you want others to think the best of you? Even if they don't fully understand what they heard or what they think they saw, then do the same for them. Do you want others to criticize you or encourage you? If you want encouragement rather than criticism, try being an encourager yourself. Listen, beloved, we simply cannot live a life that is pleasing to God, that glorifies Him, while at the same time nurturing this critical spirit. Because criticism destroys our relationships with others, and it will do the same thing in our relationship to God. Oswald Chambers said, Whenever you are in a critical temper, it is impossible to enter into communion with God. I don't know about you, but God has connected these words about criticism and judgment to my life today and in the previous week or so as I've been studying for this message. Perhaps He's connected with your life as well. So I want you to join me as we close with some serious reflection upon some important questions. Am I a critical person? Do I default to negativism and unforgiveness with my opinions of others? Am I a hypercritical person that often slips over into judgmentalism? And am I reaping the consequences in my relationship with God? Does my spirit often seem dry and barren, and could it be that my own critical spirit is responsible? Am I ready to admit that my critical attitude is responsible for hurting my relationship with God? Am I willing to admit that I have justified and rationalized my critical attitude as acceptable? Am I willing to repent? Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your word that gives us clear direction, clear teaching on good and evil, on right and wrong, on moral and immoral. Father, may we never waver in standing up 
for your word and what is true and right and moral. May we never waver in our defense of the church and the gospel of your son Jesus Christ and its proclamation. Father, we do recognize that we live in a difficult time, perhaps more difficult than earlier times, perhaps not, yet it is our time. Father, as we deal with our culture, May we, may we do so with a, a cup filled with your spirit and your power, a mind filled and saturated by your word, that we could take that stand for good and right and moral and true and biblical in the face of lies and untruths and half-truths and immorality. Father, I do pray for our young people that will be here after so many of us are, are home with you. If the trajectory of the past decade is any indication, Father, their battle will be more intense. Their struggle will be more severe. They will need to be stronger, more resolute, in order not to compromise and cave to the culture. Father, may we be a part, starting with parents, Father, I pray. And the church and pastors and teachers, may we be faithful in proclaiming the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and upholding the truth of your word with regard to that which is moral and evil, with regard to that which is good and evil to these young people, that they may have a clear understanding in their minds, that they might engage our culture boldly, courageously, authoritatively, standing on the word that you've given us in Holy Scripture. Father, we don't want to be those who judge others who are different from us. We confess that we have in the past. Father, we want to be kind and benevolent. You have treated us in that manner. Father, we want to do that with others we encounter. Help us, Father. Help us when we're critical. Help us when we get irritable. Help us when we get angry to squash those emotions and to rest in the power of your Holy Spirit and manifest the fruit of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We would not be a judging people, a judging church. Father, we'd be a merciful people and a merciful church. Well, I want to pray for those who are here this morning and they are lost and without your Son, Jesus Christ. They are destined for the gates of hell where they leave this place and die today. Father, your word teaches us clearly that we're all going to spend eternity somewhere, either in glory with you or in eternal separation from you, in eternal condemnation, in eternal torment, separated from you in the fires of hell. And I pray for those who are here today with no apologies, Father, for the language. I say to those people who are here today, turn to Jesus. Father, I pray you'd impress upon their hearts on this day to turn to your Son, Jesus, and to give their life and their heart to Him that they might know salvation and forgiveness of sins. And I pray, Father, for those who are here today and they're looking for a church home. And they, they've cast about, and there are so many good examples, and we're thankful for that here in the Tri-Cities. But perhaps they feel like today might be the day and that you're directing them to Richland Baptist Church. Father, we want your, obviously, Father, we want your will to be done in this case, and we pray that if, if today be the day, 
that they rise and come forward and unite with Richland Baptist Church as members. We pray all these things in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.